This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Monday edition for a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about things that are going on in your lives, anything and everything. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. I got a rush of those here today, so uh, we'd love to have your questions as well. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Hope you had a great day uh, in church yesterday. We did uh, more and more and more. People are coming back, which is a real blessing. There's nothing quite like seeing people that you've been missing some of them who've been sick, some of them who've been having babies, and it's just really great to get the family back together again. And I hope you had that experience at church as well. If you're not yet in church, and you're not one of those um, uh, compromised, immune-compromised people or or in the high-risk groups, please overcome your fear and get back to church. It's where you need to be. You know, we've had a bunch of people start showing up here from other churches that are closed. And that's never what we want. We we want people to hear the word. We want people getting saved. But, um, you know, people need to go to church. And so too do you, if that's you. So um, prayerfully consider it. The Lord will answer your prayer. And uh, I'm sure your church would love to see you. A couple more things before we get started today. Tonight is our men's and women's Bible studies uh, and youth studies as well, high school and junior high school. Um, Paula will be teaching the ladies, and tonight Dr. Peter will be teaching the men. Pastor Ken is out of town for a few days during our holiday break here at school. Or not a holiday break, it's a fall fall break. It's our semester break or quarter break or whatever they call it. But um, our Bible studies will be going tonight at 7 o'clock. Wear warm clothing. I know it's still warm out there now, but I'm told that's not going to last through the evening. So uh, wear warm clothing. Come worship the Lord. 
and sit in on a Bible study, and you will be blessed. Um, we'd love to have you. Uh, you can live stream the ladies' portion of the study at calvarysa.com if you want to listen to Paula, but can't make it. We'd love to do that. One other thing that's really been on my heart, um, this morning I was reading Psalm 12, and I told Paula, boy, Psalm 12, anybody asks you about what are we going to do with the election? Things are so messed up. Read Psalm 12 and really sort of meditate on it and let the Lord kind of bring peace to your heart. Um, Only God can do that. Uh, The other thing I'd like to ask everybody in this audience to do, I know when I ask for prayer, many, many, many of you are praying. So uh, I would like everybody to commit every day this week um, through Tuesday of next week, which is Election Day, to be praying for our nation. Pray for the election. Pray for the president-elect, whoever that might be. Don't pray that somebody wins it. You know, we, we think we know stuff and we pray for something. God God knows what's going to happen. He knows his will. Um, that doesn't mean he prefers one candidate over another. It just means he knows what's going to happen. And we really need to pray for our nation because we need a move of God's Spirit desperately. There's no way that these sides can be reconciled apart from a move of God's Spirit. And I would ask all of you to be praying daily for our nation, uh, for our leaders, uh, for our country in general. Um, uh, Just, we need to cover this week in prayer. It's going to get uglier. Um, It's pretty much all COVID all the time now. Uh, Media trying to create a um, um, sort of a dissatisfaction in voters so they will change candidates. Um, but but let's just pray. Without political input, God doesn't need our counsel. But just pray that God will move on the hearts of the people in this country, that we might we might get a little bit of extra time as God's Spirit moves in our country one last time. Before Jesus comes, he's coming soon. So I would ask you to do that, and who knows, maybe we'll see God's hand move in a super powerful way. I would love that. Let me get to some questions while we await any phone calls that are going to come. My first one is from Patricia. Uh, Pastor Ron, does, what does the name Bar mean in the name Bar Jesus? Was the name Jesus a common name back then or not? Just curious. Thanks, Pastor Ron. Patricia, thank you for the question. The, the, the word Bar, and in your email it's capitalized, but it's a little B, literally, because it's son of. That's what bar means. And that's how they identified people. We have last names. I'm Ron Arbaugh, and that means I am the son of the man who, who bore the last name, uh, my, my father. But in the ancient world, it was just um, um, son of Jonah, son of Jesus, son of, and, and that's all it means. So it's just a way of identifying somebody uh, we use the last name, they use the title, of the, the son of, and then the name of the father. And that's how they were identified. Um, in answer to the question, was Jesus a common name back then? Uh, extremely common. One of the things that I love about, uh, about the, the first century Christians, uh, there was a man, one of the followers of Jesus, named, named um, Justice. But his real name was Jesus. But after the real Jesus came, he said, no, no, I can't have that name. So he changed his name. Don't call me Jesus, call me Justice. But that's how common a name 
um, Jesus. It's the, it's the Hebrew name Yahshua or Joshua. We would we would anglicize it, um, and so it's it's sort of the Greek alliteration is Jesus, and that's what's kind of passed down to uh, our culture in the West. Thank you, Patricia. I love those questions. Here is a question from. Um, well, I've got three questions here, and they're all anonymous, I don't think, by the same people. Um, this question is on Matthew 3.11. What did John the Baptist mean by he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire? Can you explain what he meant by being baptized with fire? Um, in the Bible, fire is a symbol of a lot of different things. It's a symbol of judgment. Uh, it's a symbol of holiness. And in this case, that's what John is referring to when he says, no, one will come after me that I'm not worthy to untie his shoelaces. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And what he's saying is that he's going to come and he's going to bring judgment. He's going to be, bring with him holiness. And that's the fire. It's a cleansing, a purifying fire that's being spoken of. So that's what he meant by that. Can you imagine what it was like for John the Baptist? Now, we know he was humble. We know filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. And yet, um, the crowds that would go out to hear him, and they would wonder, are you the one? Are you the one? And he would just kind of laugh. You know, I, I sort of laugh, and I'm not trying to compare these two things. But I've had probably three questions over the, the last couple of years from people who they hear the song that plays uh, at the opening of our, our uh, the Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, it's, and it's also the, the opening song for our teaching programs, The Word to Stand On. And, uh, and on three occasions, I've had somebody call in and say, are, are you the one singing that? It sort of sounds like your voice. And I kind of laugh because I can't carry a tune. And so, no, 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 that's not me. I think John the Baptist kind of had that same kind of reaction when they asked if he's the one, no, no, no. I'm, I'm just here to proclaim that he's coming soon. John, in fact, had the same message that many of us had. Um, he's coming. Jesus is coming. We had to be ready. So Holy Spirit, of course, we know what that means. But the fire of judgment, the fire of holiness, the fire of conviction, and Jesus certainly brought that with him as well. Thank you for that question. Here's a question from Lewis. Uh, he says, there are times when it's easy to know the will of God, especially when the answer is found in Scripture. But what about those times when we're in prayer with something that isn't addressed in Scripture? For example, a possible change in career, which ministry to be a part of, or even something like which car to buy, the decisions in life that need answers. How can we confidently move forward knowing something is in accordance with his will. I know the Lord wants me to pray, and I know he wants me to par- wants to be a part of my decision-making process, but I wish there was a way to know exactly which direction God wants me to go. This is such a, an important question for all of us. Um, you know, in the beginning, and I'm going to, this is my experience as a new Christian. I'm sure it's the same experience as many of you. You know, you get really excited after meeting Jesus. And I remember, um, I, I needed to know everything. And God always told me what I needed to know. 
he would he would speak to me through somebody else. He would speak to me through his word, or he would just speak to my heart. And it was just so. If I if I needed an answer, I knew it was going to be there. The Bible says, if you seek him, he will be found by you. And so, when there were these general things that aren't found specifically in Scripture, um, I, I I needed to know, and Jesus told me what I needed to know. But here's the thing. Once we start to grow up in the Lord, he wants us to learn to trust him to walk by faith. The Bible says that we're to walk by faith and not by sight. That's what Paul says. And whenever we're in a place where we said, I want to know exactly where you want me to go, God, that's walking by sight. God says, can you trust me? Now, this is the most important thing I'm going to say probably in this entire program today. If your heart is right with God, Lewis, you don't have to be right. If you're walking in the will of God, if you're seeking Him, if you're following Jesus, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, I call them by name and they follow me. If you're following Jesus, He's the one who's directing your steps. And so you need just to follow Jesus with the right heart. And then with thanksgiving, we can make our request known to God. We can say, Lord, I'm going to use your examples um, um, a possible change in career. These are big questions. Lord, I need to know what to do. And and it's okay even to say if you have a preference, Lord, this job seems like it's a really good job to take. So so it's something I'd like. But if you then can say, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done the same way Jesus did, then God is going to direct your steps. If your heart is right, you don't have to be. Now, let me get even more practical. Possible change in career. These are big questions. Don't do anything until you know what to do. Don't do anything at all until you know what to do. God will reveal to you what he wants you to do. Just don't jump out ahead of him. And he uses these things. Now, they seem rather they seem rather inefficient for us. You know, we think, well, just tell me what to do. I want to obey you. But remember, he's teaching you to walk by faith. He's teaching you to discern his voice. He's teaching you to go to Scripture, and he will give you confirmations of that. So just wait. Be patient. Well, if I'm patient, I might miss the new job. That's okay. Remember, if you're following Jesus, you cannot miss the will of God. So stay where you are until you know what God wants you to do. That's very important in the sense that that um, um, God is testing us with questions like this. Do you trust him or are you going to take matters into your own hands? Now, i got to tell you, I'm a decision maker. Before I got saved as a businessman, I made decisions all the time. I think, Lewis, the single most difficult thing in my life as a, as a growing Christian was then and continues to be, not just to make instinctive decisions. I I like to make decisions, and I'm not afraid of making wrong decisions. But as a believer, especially as a pastor, especially as Paula's husband, then what I need to do is make sure that the people that I care so deeply about aren't going to be affected negatively by my decision. So, Jesus, I want to be in your will. And he never fails to tell me. Now, he doesn't tell me as soon as I'd like him to. But he always does. 
Let me deal with one other thing with regard to this one. And this is just such a great example because you can't go to chapter one of the book of possible career choices. So here's what you do if you're married. You and your wife commit it to prayer. There's nothing that happens here at Calvary Chapel on a big scale. Now I make little decisions and things all the time. But but whenever it comes to really important things, uh, uh, ordaining people, when the Lord's put somebody on my heart, it, it always goes through Paula first. I'm not looking for her permission. I'm asking her to seek the Lord because I want her counsel. And I want to know that when we've made a decision, it's a decision that we've made in partnership. And I'll tell you honestly, if I had somebody that I thought maybe God was was um, working on, somebody he was preparing to be a pastor, and I said to Paula, what do you think? And she said, I, I just don't get any clearance from the Lord on this at all. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Paul is the only person in this world that has always and only wanted the best for me. We're one flesh. We're not two people. And so Paula is sort of my sounding board. And her counsel means more to me than anybody else's. So as a husband, you go to your wife and you say, here's an opportunity to change careers. And I want to know what you think. And you don't really want to know what they think. You want to know what they've prayerfully discerned. And then you commit to praying. You don't do something until the two of you are in agreement. When Paul and I came to San Antonio, Texas 25 years ago, we weren't coming until she heard from the Lord that she was to be here. If we didn't have that kind of unity when we got here, Lewis, we wouldn't have been able to make it. We wouldn't have lasted six months, and I can tell you that for sure. But because I knew and she knew when things really got hard here, there was no opportunity for second guessing. We'd simply close that door to the devil. So those are really important things, but be patient. Now, with regard to something like buying a car, Too often, I think, we Christians sort of think God doesn't want to do nice things for us. Uh, a dear son in the Lord who, um, they're buying a new house. And, you know, both of them, husband and wife, are thinking, well, we're content where we are. We don't need to spend the extra money. And, and, and I just asked him, I said, why don't you let God do something nice for you? God will tell you if you're making a, choice, a decision that's, that's, that's wrong. So just enjoy what he wants you to do. Those are really important things. So that's how you confidently move forward, knowing something is in accordance with his will. If you're married, you, you're one with your wife. If you're single, um, you, you're just not going to do something until you know it's from the Lord. And he will let you know. In his word, he will let you know. He'll confirm it almost always as you're studying your Bible. So I hope that helps. Those are really important questions, and they couldn't be more practical. Thank you for that very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions, or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is another anonymous question. I'm reading about the sacrifices in Leviticus, and I see that God wants all the fat of the animal for himself. Can you explain a little more on what we're to learn about these sacrifices and also the significance of the fat of the animal? What does it represent? Thank you. 
Uh, anonymous, um, the, the fat of the animal is the best part. Can you imagine when they were sacrificing uh, an animal and they'd put it on the altar, but they'd set the fat of the animal aside and they'd burn it. It was to be totally consumed. Can you imagine what that smelled like? Can you imagine how everybody would be attracted to that smell? Well, God is simply saying, give me the best part. And that's a principle that we need to learn and never, ever forget. The best always belongs to the Lord. And that's what he's saying. Um, I want the fat. It is a sweet aroma. And what we're doing that we're offering God our best. And at the same time, we're denying ourselves in the process. Now, if I'm barbecuing, I want fat on my meat. <laughs> That's what really tastes good. But in, the, in this context of worship, God is simply saying the first part, the best part, always goes to me. So that's what it represents, and that's why it's important. And then remember, he gave um, the, the Levites in particular uh, plenty of the leftovers to participate in. So God's simply saying, here's the purpose, give me your best. We 21st century Christians would often give God the leftovers. You know, there's the old story about the man that had two sheep and one of them was sick and the other one was perfectly healthy. And they went out one day and the wife said to him, well, it looks like one of the sheep died. Was that ours or was that the Lord's? He goes, oh, the Lord's sheep died. <laughs> you know, we, want, we need to give God our best always. So, good question. Thank you for that. Anonymous, another one says, Pastor Ron, can a Christian miss the rapture if he's living in sin? Anonymous, a real Christian, a born-again believer in Jesus Christ cannot miss the rapture no matter what. When Jesus comes for his church, he's going to take all of us who are his. It's that simple. We've We've been born again. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, here's the bigger question. What would you say to Jesus? That moment when you looked into his face and you knew that the rapture came and you were living in sin. You were living willfully separated from God. What would you say to him? I think that's something that we don't think about. You know, we think about the rapture. We think about heaven but we don't think about the bitter, the utter and total disappointment of disappointing him. Can you imagine, Anonymous, when he shows you those hands with the scars in them, when he shows you the, the scar, the hole that, that's in his side, that face that's been beaten, and he looks at you and says, I did all of this for you. And then our lives are going to be judged, not for salvation, but for the quality of our works. How would you answer the question that Jesus looked at you with that face that was so beaten? How would you answer him when he said, why? Now, he knows the answers. But how would you answer? How would you answer if your marriage was a mess? If there was no fruit of the Spirit being demonstrated in your home? How would you answer if you were drinking or doing drugs? On my wall here in my office, which is also the studio for the show, 
I have a picture about the the wedding, a, a painting, a nice one of the wedding banquet of the lamb. And the door is ajar, and you can see inside the beauty of this celebration. Out of the painting, sort of the gold and the the, the glory just jumps out through that opening in the door. And Jesus is the one who opened it. And on the other side, there's a man not wearing wedding clothes, not, not in glory. But Jesus opens the door. He's on his knees. And the question he asks is, is looking up at Jesus, me? Me, you'll take me? Well, that's what it'll be like, Anonymous, when the rapture comes. If you or whoever it is you're speaking about is living in sin. It's not ever going to be just enough to get to heaven, I promise you that. We're not going to get to heaven in the rapture and say, phew, I made it. We're going to have to give answers for the poor decisions that we made. And while I tell people here all the time not to ask the question, why? Never ask God why. You can say who or what, what do you want me to learn, but never say why. Because that's the question that we're going to have to answer at that moment when we've decided that we're going to do what we want instead of what he wants. Why? And there is no answer that will suffice. Hey, we'd love to have your live calls. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Monday show, 340-9585. Let's go right to the phones. Michelle from San Antonio, I'm so sorry I left you on hold, but you're on the air now. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi. Um, I want, I'm studying um, the Book of Solomon, or I'm sorry, Book of Kings and Solomon's Life and my devotion time. And um, I came across um, some commentary on it, so I just wanted your input um, regarding whether or not Solomon is in heaven, considering all of the um, compromises that he made. But if, in particular, in light of Ecclesiastes, when he seemingly comes to his senses. Um, so I just wanted your input. And if I could also ask uh, another question. Hmm? Um, and yes. then kind of sort of along the late same thinking, but hearing the statement, um, God loves the sin, but or, he loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Just um, thinking about Psalm 5, Psalm 11, where he talks about he hates sinners, just trying to reconcile that whole idea, in particular trying to minister to people with those two things. So I'll, I'll hang up and I'll listen to your answer. Thank you, Michelle. Let me do the the second question first, just because it's a little bit easier. My my personal reading, I'm not a Psalms guy. You know, there's some books we're really drawn to, others that we're not. Uh, I'm not a Psalms guy. 
and I'm probably poorer for it. Uh, but um, I just purposed in my heart, I'm, I'm going to read through the Psalms again. So in my personal reading, I'm going through the Psalms right now, and I ran into some of those Psalms. I think I'm up to Psalm 20 now. And I ran into some of those songs, and it's so foreign uh, when, when David is writing. Remember, this is the heart of David. And he's, he's looking from a heart that knows nothing of grace. This is a man that knows nothing of Jesus in the forgiving sense. To him, God was a vindicator. God was one who set things right. God's blessing was on his life. He suffered because of that blessing. And he always knew that, that God would vindicate him. And so when um, um, we read that kind of language, we need to understand that rather than from a theological or doctrinal point of view, we understand that uh, more from a poetic point of view. It's man using his understanding or his limited perspective, not really knowing anything about this marvelous grace of God that we enjoy so much. So that's what we need to remember. This is not doctrine. This is simply a poem expressing the heart of David as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there's great value from those psalms. But uh, remember, David, David say, you, you love me. They're trying to kill me. You must hate them. Uh, David, from a Jewish perspective, would have no understanding of God's love for everyone. For God so loved the world, to verse it hadn't been written yet. Let me also say something about the God loves the sin, but or lo- loves the sinner but hates the sin. Well, theologically, that's correct, uh, Michelle. We have to be really, really careful about using that um, because we live in a time. You know, we're, we're hearing a lot about identity politics. Well, people's identity is in what they do. For instance, a a, a gay person. Um, who he says, if you love me, then you'll accept me for who I am and you'll accept what I do. And so the distinction between loving them but hating their sin is completely lost and it's a very ineffective way to minister to somebody or to evangelize somebody. So um, um, it's, it's theologically correct. God loves the sin or the sinner because he loves everybody, but he hates the sin because the sin separates us from God. So that's really important. The question about Solomon, now when we were studying uh, Solomon's life here at uh, Calvary Chapel, Michelle, um, I talked about this a great deal. There is no doubt whatsoever that Solomon is in heaven. No doubt whatsoever. Um, He was a a son of the the king with whom God made a covenant. Um, Solomon would rule and reign and have people ruling and reigning after him on the throne of Israel forever and ever is the idea. So he is in the lineage. That doesn't mean all of the kings uh, in Israel are in heaven. But Solomon was not only a writer of a lot of our Bible, uh, a brilliant man, more brilliant than anyone who's ever lived, um, but, but God had a special arrangement with him. Didn't allow him to sin. It just shows you that that we're so prone to sin that even the smartest, the richest, the wisest people apart from God are going to fall. But um, he is definitely in heaven. Um, His journey is sort of chronicled for us. If we will read critically um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, 
Um, in, in the Song of Solomon, by the way, um, if, if we will read those works um, in perspective and re- reading them, taking the, the whole life of Solomon to account, what we're going to see is he's just like a lot of us. He started out really, really well. Then he got rich. Then he got comfortable. He started doing things that God told him not to do. He started multiplying horses. That's what kings did when they wanted to be really strong. Um, He started multiplying wives, two things God told him never to do. Don't multiply horses. Don't multiply wives. Many of his wives were foreign. God told him not to marry foreign women. And those foreign women would, would worship idols in the king's palace. Can you imagine what that was like for God? Uh, and so he fell away. And we're all going to fall away out of fellowship with God. The, the best of us is going to fall away when we're out of fellowship with God. Proverbs. You know, Solomon was a terrible dad. A horrible dad. And yet he wrote the greatest child-raising book in the history of our world. He just didn't apply what he knew. And so then we see the beautiful story of the Song of Solomon. He wrote a thousand songs, but this was the song that God wrote. It's a beautiful picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ and his passion, literally his lust. It's a holy lust, but his lust for us. And then we get to Ecclesiastes, which was written at a time when Solomon was old, advanced in years, and he was looking back on a life squandered. And Ecclesiastes, as you suggested, Michelle, is a sort of come-to-Jesus moment where he realizes that everything that he'd done was meaningless. Vanity is the King James word, um, a chasing after the wind. Everything I did, whether it was pursuing wealth, pursuing knowledge, pursuing fun, pursuing sin, everything I did, as an old man, he would sit back and say, wow, wasted time. I always like to think about about him having a thousand women. And at the end, especially when you've read Song of Solomon, he'd sit back and he'd say, you know, every minute spent with any woman other than that Shulamite was time wasted. She's the one I loved. She's the one I wanted to be with. And I messed it up. And then he came to the conclusion that everything apart from God is meaningless, and he made that repentant turn back in the right direction and followed God's word. So thank you very, very much, Michelle. Great question. Appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to um, Betty from Universal City. Betty, you're a neighbor. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. It was just a pleasure to listen to you and, you know, learn uh, everything about God's war, and uh, this time I would like if you could tell me more about Luke twelve fifty three, where it says, you know, a father will be against the son, and the mother against the daughter. Yeah, about I can that. Do it. Then. Yeah. I can do that. Let me pull it up here, and I will get it. They will be divided, he says, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. Now, remember the context of this. Uh, He says um, to the crowd, there's a huge crowd, 
And he says in verse 51, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? We all have a tendency to think of Jesus, Betty, as, as well, when, when we're doing what God wants us to do, when we come to faith, he's going to make everything better. He's going to heal my marriage. He's going to heal my relationship with the kids. And in verse 51, he asks a very hard question. Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? And he says, no, I tell you, I'll bring division. And then he says there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. And then the verse that we just read. And here's what he's saying, Betty. He's saying that the man or the woman who takes a stand for him, even in his or her own home, is going to face opposition. And we've all encountered that. We've all got uh, 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 somebody in our family that thinks we're crazy for following Jesus uh, when I got saved, honestly, I think people would have rather me be the old jerk that I used to be but, but because they didn't want to believe in Christ. And if they saw Jesus change my life, then they would realize that they had to change. And that's why the opposition. Jesus understood this in his own family. You remember, Betty, that there was a time Jesus had this huge crowd around him and his brothers and his sisters and his mother um, you know, they were they were being persecuted. They were uncomfortable because all the attention Jesus was bringing to the family. Jesus, the oldest in the family, it would have fallen to him to support the family in the absence of the father. And by this time, Joseph was clearly dead. And and, and so they went to get him. And the Bible says they thought he was out of his mind. Literally, they thought he was crazy. And when Jesus, they went to get him and word got to him that his his mother and his brother and his sisters out there. And Jesus looked at the man who delivered the message and said, my mother, my brother, my sisters. No, my mother, my brother, my sisters, these who do the will of God, they're my family. So division was always a part of his ministry. Division will always be a part of ours. And what he's saying is, look, just because your family will reject you because you accept Jesus Christ, you still have to stand for me, with me. It's a choice that we've got to make all the time. So that's what he's talking about. And Betty, this this kind of a of a um, scenario I've been through so many times. Uh, we've had Catholics who converted to Christianity, and um, you know, especially the daughters, but not limited to the daughters, would always worry the most about disappointing mom. I'm going to break my mother's heart. This is going to kill her. She doesn't want me to convert. She doesn't want me to get baptized. She says, I'm a Catholic. I was baptized as an infant. And we always tell them, and we use this passage of Scripture. Who do you love more, your mother or your Savior? And it's a choice everybody has to make. And Jesus is saying, following me is going to cost you. And in this case, the context is it's going to cost you even with own your own family. We'd like to think that everybody is thrilled when we give our life to Jesus and we get saved. But we all know by experience that's just not the case. Betty, thank you very much. That's a great question. Can I add another question about sure. so how can we, you know, as we're growing, you know, getting closer to God, to Jesus, how can we still be, you know, treat them, you know, be part of the family or, you know, they still have that um, meeting, you know, with the family. Well, I, I think what you have to do, Betty, and this is a great opportunity to witness to them, you've got to let people know, and this is really hard for humans, especially when it comes to kids with their parents. 
But you got to let him know that, that this is what God is doing in my life. And for the first time, I know him. And I know his love. And I love him. And mom or dad, I love you, brother, sister, I love you with all of my heart. But I love Jesus more. And I have to walk with Jesus. And, and not only is it a great testimony, it shows them that you love Jesus more than you love them, and you're not going to listen to them as they try to talk you out of following Jesus. Uh, and, and in some cases, uh, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, will use that to win them, to convince them to come to Jesus. But in many cases, many, many, many cases, uh, it just hardens their heart against you. And that's just something you're going to have to deal with. Always deal respectfully with them. Don't argue with them. But don't ever compromise. Don't let them drag you into compromise. For example, we're coming up to a time of holidays and people are going to have family members over. And nobody's going to come to my house, no matter how much they love or don't love Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to pray for the food. We're going to give thanks. We're going to share what we're grateful for, what God has done in our lives over this past year. And uh, anybody that doesn't like that, well, they've got a choice to make. I've had people in my family, actually, Betty, who would say, well, you, we want to come to your house or we want you to come to ours, but, but just don't talk about Jesus. And I, I tell them, look, I can't do that. I just can't do that. And it makes them angry, but it also impresses upon them how genuine my faith is. And then the, the problem, I'm, I don't take it personal, the problem is with them and the Lord, between them and the Lord. So uh, be respectful, but be firm in your commitment to Jesus Christ. Anybody who, who comes to Betty's house or anybody who invites Betty to their house needs to know that you're bringing Jesus with them. And pretty soon they will either convert or they will stop inviting you. Now we don't like that when that happens either. But that's just the way it is, and that's the point Jesus was making. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank you so much, Pastor Ron. God bless you. Thank you, Betty. Uh, you too. God bless. I, I I always ask if that makes sense, because it's it's what we don't want to hear. We want there to be a way to do both, to make our family happy. And Jesus Jesus always says, you've got to choose. You've got to choose. And any time we choose somebody in this world ahead of Jesus, we're the poorer for it. Wonderful question. Here is a question from Reggie. He said, Pastor Ron, when the man asked Jesus to help him with unbelief, what did that mean? Wasn't he a believer? Um, Reggie, the, the, the place you're referring to is the demoniac boy's father. Um, um, you can imagine the grief this man had. And, and we, we also have to remember the, the time that this incident happened. We have no evidence that this man was a believer the way we understand believer. Now, I'm certain that he became a believer after the son was delivered from the demons. But this man came to Jesus' disciples and he just asked them, cast this demon out of my son. He throws himself in the fire. I mean, his life was a mess. And of course, the disciples couldn't. Jesus came down from the Mount of, of Transfiguration and um, the man was asked directly by Jesus, do you believe I can help this? He said, I do. Now, he'd heard what Jesus had done. He was in the presence of the Lord. There was something that he would have understood. There was something different about this man than, than the incident with his disciples or the Jewish uh, exorcists. 
I said, I believe. But then he said this, and this is a great prayer for us a lot of times. He said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. And here's what he was saying. My child is in such pain. It's been this way for as long as he lives. I just can't take any more. I'm so hopeless and so afraid that I dare not believe. That's why he said, help me with my, my unbelief. And that is when I believe he became a believer. He saw Jesus' deliverance of his son. And that would have been a man, I'm certain, who followed Jesus and he and his son for the rest of his life. Now, I mean, Reggie, speak about the application for us in this. This is so important because there's a lot of things that we just find hard to believe. We get so many wonderful, glorious promises in our Bible. And yet sometimes we just don't believe God will do it for us. We see him blessing other people. We see other people being used. And, and we want to believe. We, we want to be used. But there's just something. Part of it is spiritual interference. The enemy doesn't want us to believe. There are times when God asks you to do something that makes no sense at all. I've lived my life as a Christian doing things that made no sense at all. I cannot tell you, Reggie, how many times in my prayers I've said, Lord, I believe. I know this is you telling me this, but this seems so impossible. Help me with my unbelief. And you know what he always does. Reggie, I'll just speak personally. That's how we got a free school. That's how we have a free doctor's office. That's why we have a house for women who are in difficult times. We can't afford any of that. You know, we have a small church building. We can't fit people in. It's not like suddenly we're going to have 2,000 people show up and our offerings are going to go up exponentially. We can't fit people in. And so there are times we just say, Jesus, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. I'll tell you the last time I asked this prayer, Reggie. Our church has always been broke. Always. And when this virus hit back in March, and when they closed down the churches, I'm thinking oh, a couple of weeks, we'll see what happens, but they'll, let, they'll open churches up. Oh, well, that didn't happen. And I remember taking those walks with the Lord and saying, Lord, we can't survive. Money doesn't come in. We can't survive. I mean, it's not like we have a, a surplus in the bank. Lord, I trust you. Our money comes from you. We're never to let people know what our needs are. We always have immense need. But we're never to tell anybody what our needs are. We're never to ask for money. Not ever. And I said, Lord, I believe you. You've always taken care of us. Our provision doesn't come from people. It comes through people, but it always comes from you. So, Lord, help me with my unbelief. I didn't want fear to win out over my faith at this instance. It was a big test for me personally. Well, what we found out, Reggie, God help me with my unbelief, and our people became more generous than ever before. Giving went up when they stopped coming to church. Maybe they were that happy to not have to look at me and hear me preach, but, but giving went up. 
And until recently, it's continued that way. And so now we're in one of those things. Okay, Lord, I know you're going to take care of us. Help me with my unbelief. I don't want to get trapped in in unbelief. In his hometown, Reggie, in Nazareth, he could do no miracles or couldn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief. I don't ever want to be cut off from anything and everything God wants us to do. So that's the the way that we can apply that in our own lives. It's a great testimony. Help me with my unbelief. This is an honest, humble guy. Lord, I believe he wasn't trying to fake it until he made it. He just needed help. So do we. Last question of the day. It's from Louis. I know that we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe, but why do some people in Acts receive the Holy Spirit after they already believe? Um, Louis, you won't find any, any instances like that. Now, there are people who are disciples. We read the word disciple. For instance, Acts chapter 19, when, when, when the, the, the disciples uh, from Ephesus were encountered. Um, Paul asked them, do you, do, do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit? They said, we didn't even know what the Holy Spirit was. Jesus made it clear, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're none of his. These were disciples of John the Baptist. These were people that had part of the story, but they didn't have the rest of the story. So they were followers. They were seeking God. God made sure they found him. And so when Paul said, have you received the Holy Spirit? We haven't even heard there is such a thing. And Paul laid hands on them, and instantly they were filled with the Spirit, and they spoke in tongues. Now, it's not the tongues. Tongues are sometimes a sign. But this is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It is also, at the same time, concurrently, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they didn't already believe. They believed part of the story, but they didn't have the whole story. And the beauty of this is that because they were seeking God, they found him. He found them. And when Paul laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Well, then everything changed. And of course, you know the end of that story. There was a great door of effective ministry opened up in Ephesus for the Apostle Paul. And he stayed with them for more than three years. So uh, they were already partly believers, but they weren't what we would call converts to Christianity yet until they knew the whole story. And Paul would tell them Jesus came, he died, he didn't stay dead, and now he wants to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And they would say, give us this power, and, and of course the rest is history. But just because it says some disciples don't automatically consider that as they were believers in Jesus Christ, because Paul would be the one who would tell them about Jesus. Good question. Thanks very much. Appreciate the questions and the phone calls today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Remember, tonight at 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel, Paula will be teaching the ladies. Pastor Dr. Peter Paley will be teaching the men at 7 o'clock. On, you can watch it on live stream. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Bye-bye.